Welcome to Inspiring Women with Lori McGraw. I am your host, Lori McGraw. I have spent the past 30 years in leadership, and over the years, I've come to learn one thing. Women need women, and not just any women, but inspiring women. Tune in every week to hear from women at the pinnacle of their careers and from others who are just starting out. Episodes can be found at inspiringwomen.show or subscribe on your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening, and I hope you will be inspired. This is Inspiring Women, and I am Lori McGraw. Today, I'm speaking with Lita Thomas and her daughter, Jean Marie McNamara. Now, Lita and Jean just dropped a um, book this year that just came out. It's called Lita and Jean Memoirs of Two Generations of Military Women, put out by Master Wings Publishing. Now, Lita and Jean, I'm really excited to be speaking today. It's November. Um, today is actually Veterans Day when we are dropping this episode, and November happens to be Veteran and Military families months so i think this is going to be a particularly special conversation and i want to welcome you both to inspiring women thank you it's a pleasure and honor to be here yes thank you very much we appreciate the opportunity well i am looking forward to this conversation you know just as we were sort of talking a little bit before we got started um, i usually spend most of my inspiring women conversations speaking to women in the healthcare innovation and technology industry but i think this is pretty special now both of you are very familiar with healthcare and gene you in particular you know are mm -hmm. i'll call you an expert in it um, but i actually <laughs> want to <laughs> i want to focus today really on you know the memoir that you put out your service as military women and let me also just thank you for that service which is so important what drew you to the military why it's important and then in particular being women in the military so just as we get started you know on inspiring women i always like to start with the what about today what are you actually doing today what does day-to-day -day look like for lita and jean well Right now, um, we do a podcast every week about um, patients, inspiring other patients, and letting them know that someone else has walked the same path that they are, and uh, hopefully giving them a, a bit of um, a boost in knowing you know, that there are some tips and tricks that might be able to help them through their healthcare journey, and that's called Podcast DX shorthand for a diagnosis. When, so when I started the podcast, I had never listened to a podcast in my life. And I didn't realize that there was a naming structure that you should use. So I named it Podcast DX. Not realizing that maybe it, we should leave really, the podcast yeah, I, out. I should have left the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> but we're like five years in, so we're going to just keep it for now. Um, but so on a daily basis, we're basically uh, reading a lot of research about whatever topic is coming up so that we feel informed um, and so that we can ask hopefully insightful questions that other people want to know. And then the other thing that I'm doing is uh, I've been working on a family tree uh, through Ancestry uh, in order to find out how many other people in my family have served in the military before us. And I have been really excited to find 
over 700 people in my family tree and some notables like Meriwether Lewis from the Lewis and Clark expedition and uh, General Patton and his son, General Patton. And <laughs> wow. General Washington and General yeah. George Washington. Yeah. So we have a long military lineage that we right. really didn't know about. It's been very exciting to, uh, to find all that. Mm -hmm. You know, that's incredible. And I know that just from reading your memoir, which I really enjoyed, um, you know, that you came to military service almost by accident. It wasn't because mm -hmm. of that, you know, um, long history that you're now discovering. So maybe let's go yeah. into that a bit in terms of sort of, you know, the bio sketch, like, like, where did it start? And maybe, Lita, you could tell us, you know, what what drew you to the military just from reading the book and not to give it all away. I guess we'll give some of it away. But, you know, it wasn't like that was something that, you know, you were drawn to because so many before you, you knew had done it. It was something else. So maybe give us a bit of that background. Correct. Uh, thank you. My father and my uncle, I knew that they had served. I knew that because it was just knowledge, but it wasn't discussed. We didn't like sit around at the dinner table and talk about it. Nobody, you know, once they, they served, they hung up their uniforms and that was it. And uh, it just wasn't something that was really discussed. But when I was a, a very young mother, my girls were only uh, probably three and four at the time, um, I was unfortunately in the middle of a very contentious, very nasty divorce, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and I needed to get some type of a career behind me, and because I got married the day after high school, I obviously didn't have any college, um, it was hard. It was hard as a woman in the 1970s to make ends meet, and I was working several jobs, several part-time jobs. And in between two of my part-time jobs at a local mall, uh, while running back and forth between the jobs, I ran across a recruiter booth, and the big sign on the booth said, Free College, and that's what drew me in. And I, you know, I stopped in my tracks, and the next day I enlisted. I also think it's, you know, it's hard to probably for people today, listeners today, to also recognize that back in the 1970s, divorce wasn't sort of as commonplace or as easy being mm -hmm. on the woman's side so that it was a contentious divorce sort of taking charge of what you're going to do personally for financial stability, for your own um, sort of, you know, per, uh, potential stability for your family um, is a difficult time. I thought you did a really nice job sort of the, like explaining that sort of, you know, what it looked like back then from the perspective of um, it's not how we think about today mm -hmm. right. definitely right the military also um offers you know in addition to education it it provides on the job training um and you know actual you know there's you know uh class training but then on the job training and they also provide housing um you know and, and other resources stability, yeah stability right. medical dental right. Um, you know, those healthcare things in back then, that was a challenge to get. It was, and, and my first, uh, it, you'll have to read the book to get all the details, but my first enlistment was actually with the Air Force as a power plant mechanic, which is a aircraft engine mechanic. 
and living in the Chicago area with, at the time there were three airports, now there are two major airports, I thought, well, you know, this would be great once I'm done with my four years with the Air Force. I come back, I work at O'Hare or Midway as an aircraft mechanic. I got to be making some good money then. And I was all excited about that. But uh, that contentious divorce kind of jumped in the middle of it. And I had to get out of the Air Force before I even left. And I had to join the Army. And then I was a tank mechanic. And my first phone call was to my dad, uh, and I said, Dad, you know, we were talking about how great being an aircraft mechanic would be after I got out of the military, but what about a tank mechanic? You <laughs> don't, have many, don't have many tanks in Chicago. Here. <laughs> and he said, no, but there's heavy equipment, you know, there's construction equipment. I mean, you know, once you get that behind your, your belt, you'll be okay. So I, I, I said, okay, we'll just go for it. And I did. And I think also at that time, it was um, rare for a woman to be a mechanic. Oh, very rare. Very rare. The very first female mechanic at the CTA, which is the Chicago Transit Authority for their buses. And but that, I, was, that was in 79. Yeah. And I, I never said to my mom oh this is you know like a male dominated no, no, yeah no, right no, never never did that very supportive mm -hmm. well it's yeah. also it's also incredible to, i mean to me lita just i mean not only was it a contentious divorce it came from you know just a, a growing up history of lots of challenges and instability mm -hmm. um in in family life um and so then going on to learn incredible skills being the first not just first mechanic but first sort of integrated human units with men and women mm -hmm. so lots of first in a in in the military and and you really from from what i've seen and just you know getting a bit of your background um the amount of breaking new ground that you've done whether it was intentional or not you certainly paved the pathway um for many others and um, there's nothing about it that sounded easy um or that you necessarily had like key role models um you know either side by side or in front of you to pave that way that was something that you forged yourself gene when you when you looked at military service you certainly had your mom to look to but what drew you to it so you did have um somebody who was you know a major part of your life where military was clearly quite important absolutely um i mean just growing up as a military brat um, I got to experience um, a lot of what military life was like and also to learn that, you know, you think military, you think someone with a weapon, but in the military, you could have a job in everything from advertising and like that kind of thing. You could be a photographer, you, you could be, be you could be a chaplain, you could be a veterinarian. There's just such a plethora of job opportunities there that there's really something for everyone. And initially, I wanted to join the Peace Corps, um, and that was what I, I knew I wanted to help people, mm -hmm. and I, I wanted to you know help people, and I was trying to figure out how to go about doing that, and I thought at the time that I wanted to be a medical doctor, so I thought, well, I'll go to medical school, and then I'll join the Peace Corps, and I'll help people, and or something like that, or Doctors Without Borders, and um, thankfully, my mom had a friend, her high school math teacher... Um, who she is still friends with to this day, just to show you what kind of person she is. She has very long, dedicated, long-lasting, dedicated friendships. Um, he had gone 
to medical school and then realized he did not want to practice medicine. It wasn't his thing. So he went and then went back to school and became, um, you know, studied mathematics and became a math teacher and an amazing math teacher at that. So based on that, she kind of said, you know, you might want to do like try it out first. Mm -hmm. So test the water. yeah, test the water. See if you like, you know, medical medicine. care. Yeah. Medicine. So she said, you know, um, one option is to be, you know, join the military and become a medic. And I thought, well, that was interesting. I'd be able to help people. Um, they would provide the training and experience that I needed to know what I wanted, you know, whether or not that was something I wanted to do. And I think she realized that my high level of empathy may be problematic with a future career in medicine. You can't, um, you can't uh, internalize the pain or difficulties that someone else is going through when you're trying to treat them that can be um, detrimental. So um, I did go that route and became a medic and realized that, no, I am not, <laughs> I was not destined for a career in medicine and kind of switched it up and uh, went for chemistry instead. So study, 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 more learning, more education. Lita, were, did you, were you pushing Jean to go into the military? Was that a sort of a, you know, once you were in, I mean, you served many, many years. So how was that something that was um, important to you to have your daughter go in or was no, it, were you? Uh, not at all. Uh -huh. no, I, I never expected my daughters to follow me. I only did it. I didn't do it out of a, um, Initially, I did not do it out of a, a a love of country or a need to serve the country. I needed it. I needed security to raise my girls mm -hmm. and to do it safely. Uh, once I was in, however, I developed a a very deep love of country and service, and I I would definitely put my uniform back on today if I was needed. But I didn't expect my girls to follow me. Uh, never pushed them. I, I, I just opened doors and I said, whatever you want to do, do. And this is what she wanted to do. And I said, okay, then I guess we're going to carpool. <laughs> <laughs> and I think I saw um, from my parents' you know, time in service, um, the great com camaraderie that was there. And you form these friendships that last a lifetime and are truly amazing and transcend your military service. Yeah, I, I ended up marrying again uh, to a, a service member and uh, we both served in units next to each other. So we kind of paralleled each other and Jean hopped on board right about that time. Yeah, right about, well, just after, yeah. Right. yeah. Mm -hmm. So, but she so, was never saying, you know, oh, never saying you like you have to do this. You have to like go no, and you know but, serve your country in this way, right? But from a very very young age, um, whether or whether or not she actually realized it, she taught us that service was something everyone should and and should do. Um, but I mean, not necessarily in the military. Not necessarily in the military, but like I learned to tie my shoes, tying the shoes of someone who had, who had had a stroke. Mm -hmm. She was constantly taking us to um, senior centers to volunteer, to teach anything that we knew how to teach and to learn from those individuals because they had this wealth of knowledge um, attained from, you know, a, sometimes a century of life experience. And so we, we did learn and also just meals on wheels. We learned that you, you do need to 
be an active player in life and you do need to take an active role in helping others and that it, it can be beneficial in ways you can't even imagine. Society works better when you're working together. Mm -hmm. Well, it's just so interesting, you know, you know, Lita to hear just, you know, your your draw to the military was for finding security and stability, um, you know, for your family and for your future. And then, you know, for you, Jean, that you learned through your mom as a role model, just that being of service to others and then finding that ability to be of service to others through military service um, was where you found that footing. I want to talk about um, before, I want to talk certainly about some of the challenges that are faced within um, military because it's not all roses for certain. Um, but before we do that, I want to talk more about the opportunity in terms of the skills opportunity. And both of you, um, when you joined, you did other things than what you first started doing in your military service. So Lita, you, you, you mentioned that you first joined the Air Force and then, I mean, it's I, <laughs> the cliff notes that I have are that you joined, then you, then you were kicked out and then they made you come back. Like, how did that all, what happened there? Well, back in the seventies, I don't know what the law is today. It has recently changed. Okay, but back in the seventies, you could not join the military if you were divorced. Amazing. So Amazing. Could not. And I did not know that. All right. So when I first signed up with the Air Force, uh, with the Air Force recruiter on that day after I ran into him at the mall, um, he said, are you uh, married? Yes. Uh, you have children? Yes. He didn't say, are you about to get a divorce next week? He didn't <laughs> ask that question. I didn't answer it. And I didn't know that it was important to the conversation. I mean, it wasn't like I was keeping anything. I just didn't know it was an important part of the conversation. So I went home, a member of the Air Force. Well, the next day I went to court, my ex-husband said, oh no, I don't want her joining the Air Force. I'll never see the kids. Nope, can't, can't do it. Absolutely not. So I, I kind of looked at my lawyer. I said, now what do I do? He said, you have to get out. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I went back to the recruiter. And I said, I'm sorry, I have to get out. He said, you can't do that. I said, but my husband said that uh, he won't let me do it because we're getting a divorce and he won't see the kids. He said, oh, you're getting a divorce. You have an open court date. Okay, fine, you can get out. So he canceled my contract. I went back to court the next week. I said, all right, I'm out. He said, you know what, I thought about it. And maybe it is a good idea. <laughs> And I, 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 you know, besides the fact that you can't throttle somebody in a courtroom, I uh, just gave him a look that could kill. And I said, <laughs> now what am I supposed to do? Mm -hmm. So I took a lunch break from court and I went, I took, I grabbed a cab. I went to the other side of Chicago, back to the recruiter's office. And I said, um, guess what? He said, it's okay now. And the Air Force recruiter said, well, I can't take you. I, I'm aware that you're going to get divorced and you have children. He said, but you know what? My buddy across the hall, he doesn't know about that. And and that was the first time that I, my eyes like widened. And I'm like, you mean we're going to be doing this kind of like under the covers and, and not really? He said, no, don't say anything. Just come <laughs> over here. So we went across the hall and I joined the Army.
And what a career, what a career from there in terms of the many, many years of service, the, the skills as a tank mechanic and, you know, what you went on to do. Just incredible. Gene, for you, you when you started and you left because of an injury, maybe give us a little bit of that background in terms of what you started to do, changed to, and then sure. um, what led to, you know, what you're doing today. Sure. I joined as a medic and although I don't think... I was, my personality was well suited for being a medic. I was, you know, diligent in my career and I did um, serve out my contract. So I served uh, six years and then I re-enlisted for a year. And at that time, I kind of realized that, you know, I wasn't going to go into, medicine was not my career field of choice and I was going to focus more on chemistry. So um, I applied to officer candidate school and um, I, was ex- I was accepted to officer candidate school. I was also, I guess, a little disenfranchised by what my unit did on a day-to-day basis. We did physicals. Mm-hmm. And then when we, were on, when we were in the field, we were treating patients as they came in with different conditions. So we weren't practicing on a day-to-day basis what we needed to do in the field. And I found that a bit frustrating because um, I just, you know, I, I wanted more of a connection there. And um, the unit, my unit was actually disbanded and I was sent to a new unit. And the day I went there, they were um, testing for all of the uh, different, you know, treating all the different medical conditions that you might see in the field. And I was so excited because I was like, oh my gosh, this unit gets it. This unit is intent on doing the job that they're there for. Um, And then I got called into the commander's office and they said, oh, you're going to OCS. (laughs) And the rest of the unit is going to Bosnia. And I was like, uh, I want to go to Bosnia. Um, but they said, no, you're you're going to officer candidate school. So I went to officer candidate school and I was commissioned and uh, joined, went into the um, nuclear, biological, chemical and radiological um, corps and went for training there. And I would always like to try to um, obtain lofty goals. I wanted to, you know, learn everything I could. I wanted to excel. Um, And so I, when the opportunity for my platoon to participate in a German um, efficiency badge, uh, not competition, but to, to work towards a German efficiency badge, which means that you're basically doing like a decathlon. You're, you're, uh, doing a 15-mile road march with your equipment um, it, it, and it's a timed th- event. You're doing a high jump. You're doing a sprint. You're doing a swim. You're doing. You're firing a um, Glock. You're competing in all these different events, and the culmination of that is a medal that you can wear on your uniform, on your dress uniform. Um, so I wanted to participate in that as well, and unfortunately... Uh, or fortunately, I guess it depends on how, your perspective. The last event was the high jump, which is something I had never done before. And by we, by the time we got to this event, there were so few of us left because as you go through one event to the next, you get weeded out. So if mm-hmm. you don't complete your 15-mile road march on time, you're eliminated. If you can't qualify with a Glock, you're eliminated. If you can't do the swim in time, you're eliminated. So um, by the time we got to this final event, there were only, I want to say, four, possibly five individuals left. 
and um, my platoon leader, who was a, a full-time officer um, and was there for training and supervision, kind of walked me through what a high jump is. And they set up uh, tumbling pads to that height of a high jump mat, which it turns out um, do not have any give and can't take the impact. So I ended up, um, my brain herniated in my spinal column. My Ugh. spinal column went into my brain and my shoulder blade was torn off. And that basically ended my career. Uh, it was a How long, long ago was this? How long ago was this, Gene? It was 22 years ago. Mm -hmm. You know, it's just, it's, 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 it's hard to hear it now, even though it's been um, that while ago. I mean, it's just, it's just hard to, hard to hear it. Just devastating injury. Well, and it took four years to, because for four years, they basically said, you're fine. You have a cervical, cervical strain. And I thought, okay, I'm fine. I have a cervical strain. Um, so I, I would go to physical therapy and try really hard and I would cry through physical therapy sessions because I'm like, okay, I, I don't know why my hand is weak. I don't know why my fingers are curling up. I don't know why one side of my face and one side of my neck don't, doesn't look like the other side. I don't know why I'm choking on food. I don't know why I stop breathing at night. And it was really frustrating because I, I thought, well, why, you know, like, why am I having all of these difficulties when I was extremely athletic before, had none of these problems, and now I can't, I can't stand up without passing out. Mm -hmm. um, but luckily, because, um, and, and at the time I was getting my medical care, I was living in Chicago, my parents were taking care of me, and I was having to fly to Fort Knox for medical evaluations. But they said, oh, well, you know what? You could go to Great Lakes, which is 45 minutes away. So I went to Great Lakes. They did an MRI of my, my head and neck. And they said, okay, um, you need to have surgery. Um, we're going to try to figure out how, how quickly we can get you in because um, there's a lot going on. And they sent us to Wright Patterson Air Force Base in Ohio. And we had a consult with a Air Force surgeon. Neurosurgeon. Because at the time, everybody was deployed. Do, what happened? No, I just wanted to get a drink. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. Can what? I just take your drink? Yeah. Uh, at the time, uh, everyone was deployed. This was in 2000. Mm. Oh, I'm sorry, 2004, excuse me, 2004. Um, everyone was deployed because of 9-11, and there weren't any neurosurgeons in the United States, everyone was overseas. So they sent us to this one guy in Ohio, and he said, "Oh yeah, 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 I can, I can fix this." And I, he said, uh, "No problem." And I said, "How many have you done, sir?" He said, "Well, I haven't done any, but I saw one done." And I said, "So you're going to do brain surgery on my daughter, and you've never done it before, right?" You, you think that's a good idea? If, if, but let's say it was your daughter. Would you want to go to a doctor that had never done it before? He said, no, I can understand if you'd like to go somewhere else. I said, thank you, sir. So I went somewhere else. And we had to write to, uh, to Congress to get authorization to have the surgery done at a, a civilian hospital. Where they do the procedure several times a day. Yeah. 
So just in terms of that whole, and and obviously you've gone through a long recovery and that sort of changed your course, uh, your career course, um, and certainly military service. You know, how do you think about it, Jean? I mean, there's so many positives that you talk about in terms of, you know, military service and the opportunities that, um, that are available. Um, and you've certainly dedicated a lot of your life now to providing information for others when they, you know, receive diagnoses, what they mean, what is treatment. Um, look like? Did you feel let down? Did you feel that, or did you feel just, um, you know, clearly your mother was, you know, perhaps your biggest advocate um, at the time as you were trying to sort through that? I definitely think um, I was frustrated with the system um, in many ways. And in, in one respect, I was relieved because I was like, okay, so this is why I'm having all of these problems. And I was hoping that um, surgery would be, you know, would fix it and I would be done. Um, so it was a sense of, you know, extreme, uh, relief and disappointment, um, at the same time. And after, you know, then they did sit me down and say, well, first of all, there's a 50% chance that you won't survive the procedure. And I was like, oh, um, okay. And even after the procedure, you know, they said, because it's been so long, since your injury, it's going to take a really long time to get everything, you know, like everything to, for your recovery. It's going to take a very long time. And they said, and some things might not come back because it's also, um, because of where it was, you know, it's at the base of your brain that is responsible for your breathing, your, all the things you're not, um, conscious of doing. So my, you know, my digestive system is affected. All of that is affected and is still affected today. So I did, um, it was difficult. The procedure, the recovery was very difficult. And then they went on to fix my shoulder and they fixed that. Uh, I had to go for two procedures for that. Then I went back for another uh, procedure uh, for my my head and spine. My, and then, you know, it was like, okay, now we're, we can roll with recovery. Um, and that meant, you know, learning to talk. Um, I have severe, well, not severe, but I have aphasia. So I can't think of the word that I'm thinking of. So learning how to deal with that. And not only did I have to learn, but my mother had to learn how to um, help me with that. And then also learning to walk. Um, to My balance is still off and, and is uh, mediated by medication. So without those medications, I can't walk around. Um, and just accepting that my life would never be the same. That was in 2000, right? Mm -hmm. the, the accident was in 2000. And we just went to her cardiologist last week because her she's still having problems to this day and we're not sure if it's neuro or cardio so she's got to go for some cardiac tests and we got her in for the first neuro appointment we could get with a specialist which is next year but it, it affected her right the rest of, of my life, life right basically. and and i think accepting that is very difficult and also the military is such a I want, I'd want to say like all encompassing thing, but it, it, it does, um, it, it is like not a lifestyle, but almost like a lifestyle. It is. So it is retirees, people that are retiring from the military have difficulty transitioning into the civilian world. Um, and it's a challenge, but I think my having, you know, lost my career, my future potential, um, and, and just that sense of belonging um, was very, 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 very hard. 
So maybe I want to dig into that um, a little bit more. So we've talked a bit about sort of, you know, the, you know, both of you just um, speak with pride of the opportunity that comes with military service. Gene, just as you describe that, that um, incredible injury that now is sort of a lifelong recovery um, in terms of what that means and change the trajectory of what you expected for yourself. But now certainly, um, you know, with empathy, you continue you to be in service of others and working together with your mom, with Lita, with your podcast, and now providing this memoir. Maybe it can turn to a bit about the military from the perspective of the challenges as women um, in the military. I don't think it's any secret that we know that there's gender bias um, there. You know, Lita, you described that you were one of the first um, platoons, if you will, uh, that were integrated. Maybe if you could just describe some of the gender different that you've seen? Um, has it changed over time? And then I want to talk a little bit about the difference between military life and civilian life in that transition. Well, uh, yes, I was, it, before my platoon started training, it was not integrated. So in other words, if it was a woman, if women wanted to serve in the military, they served in the WACs, the Women's Army Corps. And um, the day that I started, it was all integrated. So we had in our barracks, one floor of women and two floors of men. So we oh. slept yeah, that's in wild. the same building, which was absolutely unheard of, but it worked. You know, we made it work. We weren't, we weren't looked, well, <laughs> we were supposed to be the same training as the men, but my drill sergeant was always being chastised by the other drill sergeants that, you know, he had the pansy platoon, you know, he had the, the women platoon and um, poor, poor drill sergeant Duggar, you know, you've got the pansies. Well, we didn't realize it, but uh, a friend of mine, I made friends with this one black girl from the south side of Chicago. Uh, who was just a phenomenal runner. She could run rings around anybody. And I hated running. So we made friends and, and I told her I needed help with running. So during our last event, before we graduated, we were supposed to run as a group. And because the pansies obviously couldn't keep up with the men, we were put at the back end of the group to run. The first platoon of men started running, the second platoon of men started running, and then our platoon started running. Well, myself and my bunk mate here, we took off running like bats out of you-know-what. And we ended up coming in before anybody in the second platoon and about halfway through the first platoon. So we just beat the pants off of both, all of them. <laughs> so we came in, to the finish line, the, our drill sergeant was there and we could tell that he was catching hell from the other guys. And he said, he told me this afterwards. He said, yeah, they were they were giving me a hard time. And then I said, wait a minute, isn't that a couple of my pansies coming in right now, beating the hell out of all your guys? So we kind of showed them. <laughs> and, uh, That's amazing. What a feel good story. Yeah, I never let it stop me. But then when I got to my first duty station as a mechanic, uh, I got to my office. I, I reported to the office, to the, to the shop chief, and he said, okay, McNamara, because I was a McNamara back then. He said, your, um, your typewriter's over there. 
Uh, this is the office where we take in reports and we send out parts for mechanics to fix their trucks or whatever. I said, no, 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 sir, I'm a mechanic. He said, yeah, but you want to be in here, right, with the other girls? I said, no, sir, I want to be out there under a truck. That's what I trained to do. I wanted to do this. He said, okay, give her a toolbox. And uh, I went to work. Whereas 20 years later, or about 20 years later, I walked into an office when I was assigned to a field artillery unit as a medic, and they said, oh, okay, your typewriter is right over there. And I no. said, well, I don't type. <laughs> I don't know how to type. I am not a typist, but I can go help that guy that's in cardiac arrest over there. And proceeded to be the medic for that unit while I was attached. So what's what's interesting about that is just that you know the um the the pre understanding of where you should be, but both of you reacted the mm -hmm. same way in terms of mm -hmm. like I appreciate being a typecast, if you will, over here. But this right. is where my skill set wants to be, and you both stood up. So you know, like mother, like right. daughter, um, clearly. Yeah, and I didn't so, tell her that story before, so it, no, it really I had no kinda, idea. When we wrote the book. Our stories came out. And we both laughed. We were and like, we oh my gosh. Neither of us had known right. about the other's story about that. It was kind of fun. But as you well, let me ask you about. Uh, oh, good. Let, let me ask you about the book. Like, why did the two of you decide to write a book? Um, and what was that? What was the process of writing a memoir? What was that like? We both did start talking about how similar our careers were. I mean, we both joined the military, we both went to Fort Jackson for basic training. Um, we both had just many of the same type of experiences as women in the military. And as we started to um, talk about that in public um, and give presentations in, in public um, for different things, we, you know, it just, it was like, oh, wow, well, you know, even though there was that time, you know, big time difference, a lot of the things had not changed. Right. Um, so it was just fascinating. And then the book took us a lot longer to write, I think, than we had anticipated. It was very cathartic. It was also painful, very, mm -hmm. very painful. Um, just having to dredge up all of those painful memories. Um, we have gone through not only, you know, all, everything that we've talked about already, but that we've also gone through um, several home floods. So we've lost a great deal with uh, flooded homes and also one house fire. So we don't have all of the paperwork that we probably once had, but we do have dozens of legal size boxes full of paperwork from all of the communications back and forth between my commander and myself or my commander and my mother regarding my medical condition and the need for treatment and, you know, begging for care and, and, and just saying, you know, like something needs to be done, you know, and that was painful. I think that, was, I think that was my impetus for writing, the fact that I thought if there's other people out there that are in situations similar to Jean, they need to know that they have to advocate for themselves. They have to push. They can't just allow some first lieutenant commander to, to control your life when it's your health that's at risk. Um, I, I just was 
Well, if there's one thing that really came through in that memoir, um, and I and it's um, it's not hard to imagine, Jean, that it was painful mm -hmm. to go through some mm -hmm. of the the stories that you share. Both of you, mm -hmm. they're raw. Um, quite frankly, they're mm -hmm. they're raw, and you're sharing a lot about um, yourself. But what did come through from my perspective was certainly um, the, certainly the love you each have for each other and the strength together that you have for each other and the standing up for what is right. I mean, that is, you know, what I took from a lot of the um, just sharing of stories and, uh, and, and it was hard to just, you know, how hard, how long it took, whether it was to get care or whether it was to, you know, get the recognition um, th that you were seeking. That was just, that, that was a theme throughout from the, um, I will say shared and and individual experiences is what I what I read through, and and there has been a lot of change, and I think we okay we, I think we kind of alluded to it a little bit in the book, but um, you know like now if someone is a single parent they can join the military. There's more um, services and support, and if you have an issue, although there's it's still problematic, hopefully you can reach out to someone and get help. You know, and things are changing and will continue to change. And also the standards for like physical fitness are changing so that uh, men and women are on like a more even playing field. And we've been excited to watch those changes take place and are thrilled that, you know, the future is, is looking brighter for uh, women in service. When you think about the um, when you think about the challenges that you've gone through, the writing of the memoir, what are the lessons that you want other well, well, for women for women today who are facing you know I, you know whether it's um, advocating for a service in the military or whether it's just advocating for themselves? What what is the advice that you give women today as they as they think about and pursue their own career journeys? I would say that. Harassment of any kind is unacceptable. I don't care what level it's coming from. Um, it's, it's unacceptable for any reason. Yeah. Um, and if they are not getting the reaction or the, you know, if, if someone isn't interceding and, uh, you know, making affecting change, they need to go elsewhere and possibly outside of the military to make sure that it stops. So if you observe it or if you are... Um, you know, someone is, is feeling harassed, it, it needs to stop. It's unacceptable at any level for any reason. Right. What advice would you give Lita? Uh, I agree with that advice completely. Um, and the other advice I would say is always keep records. Oh yeah. <laughs> of, of anything that happens to you in your life. Uh, if you want to start journaling or something along that line, but keep records because you never know when you need to reach back and grab something for evidence or... Or just even, you know, if you want to one day, you know, tell stories to your great-grandchildren about what life was like, it helps to revive your memory. And there have been some incidences in history, in not too, in pretty recent history, where complete sections of military files were lost um, due to fire. Right. So you always want to keep, you know, track of everything. And even if you're in the civilian world, um, you know, making note of your accomplishments and your challenges can help you when you're looking to your future and trying to say, like, where do I want to be next year? 
what are my goals for the next five years? Or if you're going in for that promotion, annotating what the year has been like and what accomplishments and challenges you've faced can be really beneficial. And then also saying, here's the challenge I want to meet next year. And um, looking forward while always maintaining a record of the past. You're both strong advocates for women and for women standing up for themselves. And military has clearly shaped both of your lives in very, very significant ways. For everything that you've gone through, and again, those stories that you share in this memoir, is military a career trajectory, a life of service in that way? Is that something that you would both recommend for women still? I would. I would. We have one of our friends... um, just recently wrote a a book about women joining the military and we'll send you a link to that and what women should know going into the military. But I think that it service in some way. So maybe you, you don't feel comfortable joining the military, but you want to act locally, you know, be on your local voting board, um, volunteer at a local hospital, uh, help deliver meals to those who, you know, need meals and can't get out Anything you can do to make a slight difference or a, a huge difference in someone else's life is is not only benefiting them in society, it's also going to benefit you as well. Um, we have uh, a friend who volunteers to um, uh, co-dive with individuals who have physical or mental challenges, and uh, you know he's found that extremely therapeutic for himself as well. And I think anything you can do you know, you should try to do because it can, it can be really, you know, volunteer for the local reading program. Just if you, if you not sacrifice, but if you give to others, I think you'll get something back. And I think the military, because we, it is, you know, the way the world is, we do need uh, a strong military to um, not only protect our interests, but protect the interests of those who cannot, you know, protect themselves. Right, and the military still offers phenomenal benefits. Phenomenal benefits. Yes. Uh, as far as lifelong benefits, if you want to make a career out of it, um, and the job opportunities are endless now because mm-hmm. now all jobs are open to uh, women. Mm-hmm. So yeah, we're we're big proponents still. Yes. Well, I'll tell you what, this has just been such a great conversation. I mean, clearly you are both such strong advocates for not just women, but also supporters of um, just the the life of service. It really comes through Mm -hmm. um, in your comments. And, you know, I certainly on this Veterans Day, again, say thank you to you both and also for sharing your stories. I really enjoyed reading your memoir, Lita and Jean, Memoirs of Two Generations of Military Women from Mass. Master Wings Publishing, and Lita and Jean, thank you so much for being on Inspiring Women. This has been an episode of Inspiring Women with Lori McGraw. Please subscribe, rate, and review. We are produced by Kate Cruz at Executive Podcast Solutions. More episodes can be found on inspiringwomen.show. I am Lori McGraw, and thank you for listening.